we're approaching the halfway point in in the retreat and uh, it's quite apparent to us sitting up here and it probably is to you too that uh, there's been quite a bit of settling in happening that clearly the the hall feels quite a bit different uh, than the first couple of days you know there's still lots of different states of mind arising and passing away you can see that there's still working with the sleepiness uh, some of the restlessness or discomfort in the body coming and going but also you can feel that there is a growing development of equanimity things are becoming a little less reactive you know, to what our experiences are and I think the silence in the hall really reflects the kind of effort vibration in the hall really reflects the effort that really focused work that all of us have really dedicated the last four days to feels really uh, quite wonderful sitting up here one of the difficulties with being an older student being somebody who's been practicing for a while Maybe this isn't, obviously, this is not your first retreat. It could be your second, third, fourth, fifth. Uh, but a lot of times we come into retreats and we get there and, and uh, we have a lot of kind of expectations, uh, expectations particularly about ourselves and uh, what we're going to do in practice, how it's going to go. We have like, oftentimes we deal with a lot of fixed ideas about um, what's good practice and what's bad practice. You know, oftentimes when everybody comes into the interview, and often tell right away how they feel about their practice. And, uh, and always there's this, well, my practice feels good or bad. And if there's a lot of restlessness or sleepiness, a lot of agitation or pain, then usually that means the practice isn't going well. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not what it's supposed to be doing. And if the practice is good, well, that means we're really concentrated and focused and we're feeling really calm and tranquil. And... Um, it isn't always so. It isn't always so. That's not always so. I think that we have a very difficult time evaluating our own practice. Over and over again, I see that we really are poor evaluators quite often of our practice. But we're all very deeply conditioned to judge, to make those judgments, to, to lock in on our practice. Not only our practice, but our lives. You know? We lock in on very fixed ideas about who we are. And they're very, very difficult to let go of, to overcome. And one of the consequences of that, of this kind of fixed notion, ideas about good and bad, who we are, is that it limits possibilities. It limits other possibilities. It limits us, uh, prevents us really from opening to something really new, really different. All these ideas, assumptions, expectations. Really well-known quote by Suzuki Roshi. Uh, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the experts, there are few. And I continue to reflect on that, uh, on my retreats and in my practice. And I find it very helpful because this is one of the few places that you'll find uh, where you're encouraged to keep a beginner's mind. You know, to keep a mind, what do I mean by beginner's mind? What I mean is keeping a mind that's really fresh. Yeah. A mind that's really intent on learning. That's the thrust of a beginner, is really to learn. To learn through observing. 
through watching, through paying attention. The freedom of a beginner is that they don't have the burden of knowing. They don't have that burden of being the person who knows, the expert. And that's quite a burden, being the one who knows. When you really know exactly what's happening, you really know exactly where your practice is, where you're going, who you are. We, we lose a real wakeful quality to our lives, a real presence because of that. Last March, Larry and I were out, out at IMS teaching and uh, was sitting at the lunch, lunch room. And of course, our, our lunches are a little bit different than yours. Uh, it's a bunch of staff people hanging out, sitting around talking and eating. Um, sometimes a little bit slumped over, a bit tired maybe. Uh, and uh, I remember the first day that I met uh, this little girl, girl named Kiko, who is the daughter of June, who works here on staff, and uh, the daughter of Brock, her husband. And she came over one day while I was having lunch, and uh, she was about two and a half at the time. And, you know, we're kind of sitting, doing our thing over lunch, and, and she comes in you know, and really stirs things up. She's really, really energetic, extremely cute, um, you know, very, very, very lively, very fresh, very open uh, child. And uh, she sits down, and her mother gathers the food and, and gives her a little bowl and a spoon. And, of course, everybody's giving her lots of attention. Uh, you know, she really becomes the center. Of course, I was sitting there watching really intently how she was going to eat. And it was quite in, it was fascinating to watch her eat because you really, uh, many of you are probably much more familiar with children than I am. I don't have children. But watching her eat, you could just see that it was a, it was a complete improvisation uh, of the eating process. I mean, it was like really lacked self-consciousness. I mean, it was like holding the spoon backwards and kind of hanging out, hanging with the food and just kind of looking at it, looking at me or looking at other people. And just, you know, very, very free, really open. She really hadn't been, you know, trained like all of us to sit there and use a spoon and use a fork. And, you know, we use it this way. We use the spoon with the right, the fork with the left. And it was very, very refreshing. Yeah, it was really quite wonderful to see that kind of uh, creativity, that kind of spontaneity. And of course, it, it's always a danger with children to, uh, from, me, from my perspective anyways, to, to idealize children because uh, clearly they have their problems too. Um, <laughs> uh, as we know, they're not completely free either. But they definitely have a quality that we tend to lose you know, growing up. And I think it's one of the kind of sad things uh, about growing up is that uh, we kind of lose that freshness, that kind of, that ability to improvise and be creative over even the simplest activities. And one wonders, like, how does that happen? How does that, how do we lose that quality, that kind of beginner's mind? In the late 70s, I was on uh, staff, serving on staff. I served on staff for a couple of years and and, uh, of course, uh, the Dharma wasn't uh, so popular then. Uh, the center um, didn't have so many retreats. The retreats weren't so big. And uh, consequently, we on staff had more leisure time, let us say, uh, much more leisure time. And we took advantage of that. 
every opportunity we had. We used to swim a lot. We'd go to local swimming holes and, and do all sorts of fun things. Um, and one day I was out, uh, I think I was just cruising around in the car, and um, I ended up on the other side of Barry, and I noticed uh, some tennis courts on the other side of Barry, kind of out in the middle of a, the woods. And in, uh, in all my life, I sort of had this idea about tennis. I played a lot of sports when I was a kid, uh, but tennis really wasn't my game. Um, came from a working class family, we didn't play tennis. Um, <laughs> so I saw these tennis courts and I thought, hmm, this is something new, something different. Uh, and a, a friend of mine on staff uh, happened to have some experience with tennis. And before you know it, the two of us were out there um, hitting the ball around. And it was really fun. I mean, we really had a great time. It was really out, you know, out in the forest, just really having a really great time. No, uh, you could be out there for hours. Nobody was waiting for the tennis court. Um, it was just tremendous, really fun and joy. And of course, we brought our enthusiasm back to the rest <coughs> of the staff. And before you know it, there were four and five and maybe six of us beginning to play tennis. And even we even uh, drafted somebody uh, across the street. Uh, we, we, we didn't own that little house across the street before. And there was a couple living there. And we drafted the guy. And, and he was part of our tennis uh, collective. And uh, you know we started playing. And then uh, slowly, slowly, the, 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 uh, the tenor of the games began to change. Uh, they started to shift from this kind of really joyful, uh, playful time to getting a lot more competitive, you know, a lot more organized. Uh, you know, we started organizing, we, we actually did do this, embarrassing as it is, we organized a tournament. <laughs> uh, we even had, you know, with a chart and uh, prizes, prizes like movie tickets or something, I don't know what it was. It wasn't much, but it was a prize. And uh, we got out there and we started huffing and puffing away and uh, the game got really serious. You know, it, was, it was amazing, you know, we're Dharma students really uh, actively trying to develop compassion and wisdom. And, uh, you know, except for the tennis court. And so we're up there, you know, uh, beating each other up in, on the court. and. Pretty soon people were getting kind of hurt feelings. Uh, you could see the losers were getting quiet, the winners were glowing. Um, and you know, there were lots of jokes, you know, outside of the tennis court, you know, about the game and all this kind of stuff, you know, and it started getting, well, not really pleasant, let us say, you know, it really started losing a lot. And of course, nobody noticed this at the time. We were really caught up. You know, our conditioning was really getting uh, pushed. You know, our conditioning to be competitive, to be good, to be experts. You know, some of us were like fantasizing about a new career. Uh, you know, I was almost like 30 years old and I'm thinking about professional tennis. <laughs> Where if you're 21, it's over. Um, but, you know, clearly we lost uh, in that process, the, the spirit of the game, the, and, and we stopped playing tennis. We lost the playing. We lost the playing. And no great surprise, of course, when the tournament was over, so was our tennis playing. Nobody really ever went out there again. It just kind of died. I mean, it might have turned into winter or something, and we just uh, lost interest or whatever. But um, clearly the joy uh, left us. And I think that really happens in our life a lot too. 
You know, we're really conditioned, we're trained. Uh, there's people evaluating us all the time, we're evaluating ourselves, we're competing against each other. Um, and, it, and it's really difficult to just be, to rest. You know, to, to rest in not knowing, to rest in just being a beginner. Somebody who's looking really with the intention to learn. You know, simple. So is it possible to kind of rediscover this beginner's mind now that we're, quote, grown up or adults? How to rediscover it? Well, fortunately, we can. Everybody in this room can. Everybody in this room, I safely can say, has that capacity. You know, it's the, in fact, not just everybody in this room, but I think everybody in the world, every human being has this capacity. Because we all have the capacity to be mindful. You know, it's a function of being a human being. And that's the door. You know, that's the door to beginner's mind. Is that capacity to observe your experience, to really look at your experience without any preconceptions at all, just to look at it from one moment to the next, really with the intention to learn, no more. Not rejecting the experience, not clinging to it, but just observing it. And of course, that's what we're all doing here. You know, we're all strengthening. Every moment of mindfulness strengthens the next moment of mindfulness. Yeah. So we're strengthening that ability to wake up, to be fresh, to really discover that beginner in our hearts. Upandita Sayadaw, a Burmese master that some of you may have studied with also, describes mindfulness as fresh air. And I, I really like that. It's such a simple description, but I think it's really accurate. Fresh air, that's it. Nothing extra, just fresh. You come out to Barry, it's fresh air. You go back into the city, it's not fresh air. Uh, fresh, clean, pure. Mindfulness. But of course there are challenges. Okay, there's a price. The challenge really is uh, the effort that we have to put into developing mindfulness. And one of the things that we, all of us here, uh, confront when we start a mindfulness practice is we confront the power of habit. It's a tremendous force in our life. Uh, we've somehow managed to, to almost convert our entire life into a habit um, where we do things Remarkably, we do things so well without even being present. It really astonishes me that we can even do, I mean, even the basic things like making tea. And we can do it without thinking. You know, just kind of just being there, going through the motion. We know this, we know that, we know that. But we're not really there. You know, that's the power of habit. The consequences of habit is it leads to separation. It's the separation. Separation from what we're doing. Separation from who we are. We disconnect through habit. We get bored. We get bored with life. My feeling about retreats, and, I, and this continues to this day, as much as we 
we talk about how important it is to to be mindful uh, in our daily life, and we spend a lot of time talking about that at CIMC. And yes, this is our daily life, but clearly the conditions are quite different here. I do believe that that retreat conditions are really ideal for working with this this um, this um, obstacle, really, of, of habit. Because it really gives us a chance to just slow down, to do one thing at a time. Our lives are so demanding that it really is difficult to do one thing at a time. There's just so many demands on us. Here, you've got the time. And I want to encourage you, take your time while you're here. If you find yourself hurrying, ask yourself why. Where are you going? Where are you going? Trying to get to the lunch line, uh, maybe a little up at front, like us. Uh, <laughs> you're going to eat maybe two minutes later if you take your time. Take your time. Relax. Really pay attention to each activity. Each activity. Getting up from the cushion. That is such a habit for us. We get up from the cushion, we're out into the walking room, and then we start doing walking meditation. Getting up from the cushion, getting into the walking meditation, no mindfulness at all. Habit. We move through the door and we come up to the bulletin board. What do we do? Up with the head, right at the schedule. The schedule hasn't changed in four days. <laughs> Unlikely even that your name has been on a note. Probably rare. There's not that much interest, really. There's not that much to see up there. Um, it's habit. You know, we develop habits. We're looking for something interesting. and We just do get into this kind of habitual thing. One thing we do at CIMC on a very regular basis uh, is uh, teach practice groups. And we have lots of practice groups going on all the time. And, and there, of course, the, there's an army of CIMC people here uh, during, in this retreat. And it's a lot of familiar faces from, from our community. And, and I teach a way of awareness practice group uh, a few times a year. And one of the first exercises we do, we do mindfulness exercises. We meet once a week, and then we do a mindfulness exercise throughout the week. And, and then we come back and we, we talk about it. And one of the first... Uh, exercises that we do is brushing the teeth. Yeah, brushing the teeth with mindfulness. Something We try to choose something that we know everybody is going to probably do at least once, and <laughs> hopefully more than once, maybe. Um, but we choose something that is really simple, something that we often consider quite mundane, quite unimportant. And when people come back, it, it really is... Um, it's quite inspiring because people really do experience their brushing the teeth differently when they start paying attention. They begin to notice things more. They, they begin to notice certain habits. Uh, they notice the taste of the toothpaste. They begin to feel the contact with the brush against the gums. They notice where they skip, you know, skip over this tooth or that tooth. But they really do begin to notice the experience. They start becoming really present. And that very habitual mechanical act of brushing your teeth, something you do just to get through to the next thing, becomes part of the practice. It becomes part of your life. 
You, know, you regain that part of your life. Your life isn't as fragmented when you're present. Another exercise we did once in, in a practice group on, on mind states was uh, we, would, we would spend a week doing mindfulness investigation of different mind states, and one of the mind states was boredom. You're choosing boredom. We looked at fear, we looked at fantasy, all the states of mind that we're looking at now, uh, and uh, we looked at boredom. And then at the end of the class, there were, people had a lot of interesting things to say about boredom. And at the end of the practice group, we went around and people shared the last practice group. And, and uh, several people commented on the fact that they found the most interesting state of mind to observe was boredom. The most interesting state of mind to, to observe was boredom. And it, it really makes you think, you know, what is boredom? What is boredom? Boredom is lack of attention, basically. It's not de- boredom. It doesn't depend on the activity. It doesn't depend on the activity. It's not that objective. It really depends on ourselves and in uh, the presence of mind. When we turn our attention, when we begin to pay attention to boredom, if it arises in your practice, it changes. Instead of getting lost and caught in boredom, when we bring the light of mindfulness, when we bring the fresh air of mindfulness to boredom, it opens up. It opens up. It opens up other possibilities than just sitting there, checking out because you're bored or feeling really restless. Notice it. Another challenge uh, to, uh, that we face in, in rediscovering this uh, openness, discovering this beginner's mind, is, is the preoccupation with thought. You know, we spend a lot of our time preoccupied in thinking, and I'm sure that's really apparent by now. Uh, that the tape loops keep going on and on and on. And of course, preoccupation with thought leads also to separation. Because while we're doing things, we do things out of habit, but we're also very, very absorbed in the world of thinking. Separated from our bodies. The effect of being preoccupied with thought. One, it takes the life out of relationship. I don't know if you've noticed this when you're in a relationship with somebody and you're, you're preoccupied, you're thinking about other things. What's happening in the relationship? You know, what's happening? Not much. You know, there's not a lot of satisfaction for either person. You're really doing an injustice to the relationship. Bringing mindfulness to the thinking process, which is a lot of what we're doing now, especially now that we've opened things up, once again changes things. It opens up other possibilities. Instead of being lost and caught by your thinking, you start noticing it. You start becoming aware of it. You start becoming more present. Every time you notice the wandering mind, you're in the present moment. That's why there's not anything wrong with the wandering mind. With the wandering mind, all you need to do is notice it. Be aware of it, and you're in the present moment. You're with what's happening. One of the advantages of working with the breath, uh, why we emphasize it so much at the beginning, of course it's to, devo- to, to develop calm and tranquility, but it also develops an ability to sustain attention. We're developing this ability to keep our attention steady so that when we turn the light of awareness, when we turn the light of mindfulness, when we begin to pay attention to our experience, we keep it there. 
We can see the entire life of the experience, the arising of the experience. We can see how it changes. We can see the experience as it unfolds and as it passes away. That's a full way of living. That's a full way of living. Instead of having all these experiences that, you, you, that you're not aware of, that you're not mindful of. And a lot of the reason why we miss so much is because we are preoccupied in thought. Turning attention to the inner dialogue, to the thinking mind. Another area to explore. This is a, I, th- I find this a particularly interesting one uh, because uh, it, it doesn't just exist in, in the, the world outside of the Sangha, but it really exists in the, in the world of the Sangha, which is uh, attachment to views and opinions. Uh, and that's an extremely important area for, uh, I think, especially older students to, to look at because it's really easy um, to fall into that one. Sometimes that's misunderstood, this whole notion of, of attachment to views and opinions as a problem. You know, this notion in the Dharma scene that attachment to views and opinions is, is a problem, which it is. Clearly it's a problem. It's clearly what the Buddha taught. But sometimes it gets misunderstood as views and opinions are a problem. And so sometimes we, we in the Dharma scene think, you know, there's something wrong with having a strong view or a strong opinion about something. Uh, a lot of times it's not really okay to express it. And clearly it takes a lot of skillful means to learn how to express views and express opinions. But I'm of the school that it's okay to have views and opinions, and you're welcome to them. Um, I think that uh, it's fine to take a stand, to have a view, to have an opinion about this and that. But what matters is how you hold that opinion, how you hold that view. And if you hold it too tight, if you hold it tightly, the consequences in that, we close off. It's fine to have views and opinions. It's fine to express them in in certain situations, for sure. But if you hold them too tightly, if you cling to them, if you identify with them, we close off. What happens when we close off? Of course, all learning stops. You know, the dialogue. You've seen this all, I'm sure. You get into an argument. An argument is really interesting because it's the clash of two views that are being really held tightly. That's an argument. A dialogue is two views but they're not being held so tightly. They're not really clashing. They're inter, inter each other. You know, there, there's, there's an openness. There's a softness there. Uh, there's a willingness to look at the other view, to look at the other opinion, to hear each other. So looking at the attachments, a big part of our experience, looking at the way we hold our views, looking at the way we hold our opinion. We don't have to be overly deferential. You know, we don't have to be timid. We don't have to be intimidated to express our views. I think that's a misunderstanding. It's fear. It's fine to express your views. I mentioned uh, a three-month course, a memorable three-month course in, the, in my last talk. And, and when I left that three-month course, I landed in Cambridge with kind of a 
thud, big bump. Uh, I landed in Cambridge and I was looking for a place to live and really interested in trying to find some sangha. And there really wasn't that much sangha uh, back then. There wasn't that many people who were really pr engaged in practice, meditation practice. Certainly very few that were engaged in intensive practice, intensive sitting. And so I was looking for a place to live and I ended up, uh, my good karma brought me to uh, the Cambridge Zen Center, uh, where I had the good karma of meeting my friend Larry Rosenberg, who was living there. And uh, we lived in this house for a while, and, and once again I had the good fortune to, to, to have a chance to study with a, a Korean Zen master, uh, Sun Sanim. And uh, you know, he was around quite a bit then. He, he, uh, soon after I arrived, a few months after I arrived, he he began to open new centers and started traveling around, and, and we didn't see him that often in Cambridge. But for a while he was around quite a bit, and I had, I had quite a bit of contact with him. And uh, he was an extraordinary person, is an extraordinary person, he's still alive. I haven't really spent much time with him for a while, but I hear good things about him. Anyway, his Dharma talks uh, were considerably different than the Dharma talks you're subjected to. Um, definitely more entertaining. Uh, he was an extremely lively, uh, powerful figure. I mean, he was uh, so f he was extremely forceful, yet definitely a feeling of compassion, a lot of wisdom. He used to give his talk holding a stick, you know, and, and he'd ask, people would ask him questions. He'd dump his stick, and and you know, give a, a really strong answer. And and one of the answers, uh, one of the things that he used to say very very frequently, um, was you know, only go straight, don't know. Only go straight. Don't know. Yeah. And that w and Larry does something a lot better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was very forceful. It's not like this. Um, and he'd point his stick at you. You know, kind of point your stick. Only go straight. You know, don't know. Don't know. Um, and you know, I was a vipassan, kind of a skinny vipassana student who uh, <laughs> kind of took him for his word. <laughs> Uh, I, I thought I knew what he was talking about, at least at the time. And uh, clearly he was talking about going, uh, the beginner's mind, I think, uh, clearly. And uh, interviews with him, fascinating interviews. Uh, you'd go in and, of course, I knew nothing really about Zen at the time. I, uh, really not that much about Cohen's. I actually thought you were supposed to answer the questions he was asking you. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and, and I thought that, you, that I was going to get a chance to talk, uh, which I very rarely did. <laughs> it's a few words and on it would come. And, and uh, you know, he'd question me and I would sort of go into my Vipassana rap about impermanence or this and that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he'd say, you're attached to emptiness, you're attached to emptiness. And I think he was right. Um, But finally, he'd get you to a point where you'd, you'd kind of give up. And you'd say, well, I really, I, I don't know what the answer is. And he'd say, oh, good, good. <laughs> uh, keep that mind. Keep that don't know mind. Keep that don't know mind. And then, you know, you get clever and you go back into the next interview. <laughs> and then he'd ask you a question. And you'd say, well, I don't know. Uh, and he'd say, you know, hit 
tap you with a stick pretty forcefully in the arm and say, open your mouth and you're wrong. Open your mouth and you're wrong. You know, there's just no way you could answer uh, in the correct way because he really wanted to get you to look. You know, that was the whole point of it, was to open up, to let go of all your ideas. You know, and I'd come in with these really complicated notions about what he was saying and what I should say, all this, and he was just getting me to drop it. He was just getting me to drop it. He was helping me. Sometimes we think of uh, maturity and practice We think, uh, you know, we think sometimes in terms of being, you know, kind of really knowing what we're doing. Uh, and I think that we think about practice, that practice is going to give us, you know, kind of the answers about what to do, you know, when, when we're confronted with certain situations. And I think spiritual maturity really is, it comes about through practice. I think an important aspect spiritual maturity, put it this way, is when we begin to approach life more and more consistently with the intention to learn. Okay, with the intention to learn. So that when we get confronted with difficulties, when we get confronted with life, when we move through our experiences, a lot of what we're doing is trying to learn. That's how we meet it. The mind stops blaming so much. You know, the mind stops projecting so much. The mind stops drawing so many conclusions of fixing in certain ideas. And it really meets life with this intention to learn. What can I learn from this? Yeah. What's there? Where am I what am I holding on to? Yeah. What's being provoked? One thing we find in our lives is that trying to be an expert in life really leads to a lot of trouble. That's, that's the consequences of being an expert. You should get into trouble. In Buddhism, there's a big difference between don't know mind, beginner's mind, and, and ignorance. ignorance. We talk a lot about ignorance in the Dharma, and it's quite a bit different, radically different than uh, don't know. Ignorance has something to do with thinking you know and not really knowing. Thinking you know what is going to bring you happiness. Thinking you know what is going to bring you peace and then not really understanding what will. And of course the expressions of that, the mind, how it expresses that uh, ignorance it is through uh, the kalesis. Larry mentioned this last night, the, the forces of greed hatred and delusion, because of course the force of greed convinces you that if you have something, if you can hold on to something pleasant, you're going to be happy. The force of aversion in the mind or hatred is if you can avoid this, if you can push it away, get rid of it, then you're going to be happy. The force of ignorance, the delusion, is uh, if you just don't pay attention, if you don't see it, you're going to be happy. And if the mind just stays real cloudy and dark, well, you'll get by, you'll get by, you won't suffer so much. Those forces in the mind really limit possibilities. You know, they're the, they the forces that keep throwing us out of balance. You know, they're the forces that are really creating a lot of suffering for us. They're the forces that keep telling us that we do know what we need to do. 
You know, we do know what's going to bring us happiness. And then when we go after it, we get disappointed. So much of becoming an adult, I think, is discovering that. That the things that you were kind of trained to believe, that kind of the things that uh, were told that were going to bring happiness, didn't. And we all have to deal with that disappointment. We all have to deal with that discouragement. So what are the kinds of things that we learn with don't know mind? What are the kinds of things we learn with beginner's mind? Somebody left me a note, a yogi left me a note after the my talk and, and wanted to, I guess I wasn't very clear, wanted to know, um, you know, kind of what led to, what inside of what led to uh, me getting a cushion and putting my, that cushion uh, on the bench and putting myself you know, out of agony, basically. And many, you know, the first thing that might come to mind is just common sense. Um, but it was a little more than that. It took a little bit more than that because obviously I didn't have the common sense <laughs> at the time. And so I reflected on uh, a lot more because I hadn't thought about it for a while. But, but what I realized was what, what led to that decision um, to reach for the cushion and, and to really make myself more comfortable was the recognition that uh, was mindfulness, essentially. It was the strengthening of mindfulness in the practice. It was the recognition that what I was doing was leading to suffering, you know, needless suffering, and then doing something about it. And that's really what we learn. That's what we learn. That's where don't know mind takes us. It takes us to clarity. We begin to see more and more clearly what kinds of things lead to suffering. And we begin to let go of those things. We abandon them. We don't get rid of them. We don't push them away. We don't drive them away. We gradually let go of them because we see quite clearly, quite unmistakably, that they lead to suffering and that, the, and that there's no need to continue. Another thing that we learn from Don't Know Mind is we learn more and more how to cultivate what to cultivate in our lives, in our relationships. What to cultivate that leads to genuine freedom, to inner peace. We begin to look at that more and more and just naturally develop the qualities like patience and metta, compassion, wisdom, clear seeing. Those are the qualities that come out of the practice. And those are the qualities that we're developing every sitting that we practice mindfulness. Those are the qualities that are going to lead us to a place where, a place of rest, a true place of rest. That's wisdom, that's discrimination.
So I'd like to encourage you to use this kind of settling in that's happening, to take advantage of the days that we have left. We have a lot of retreat left. Our minds are settling down. Lots of ups and downs still happening. We're noticing it, we're being mindful of it. Continue that process, continue that process. Let's sit together for a couple minutes.